Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedek. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. As I was thinking, on last week's episode, we talked about Hopkins, and he mentioned Whitley Strieber, that Whitley Strieber had genuine encounters and there was all sorts of nonsense around it and that goes back to what I said earlier about maybe some of the contactees out there once had a genuine experience of one sort or another maybe more than one and then they either embellished it when the fans wanted more or the fans helped them embellish it and that just contributes to the entire mess people always contribute to the mess Gene I mean, it's... That's what we're here for. We are people. We are here to make it messy. Well, it's a messy world, right? And and reality is messy. The nature of reality is just messy. It's a mess. Everything's a mess. But we knew that. (laughs) It's the chaos theory. Oh, man. Have you been looking... Speaking of messes and chaos theory, have you looked at our reviews on iTunes lately? Wow. I don't read reviews. You know, I learned a long time ago when I started writing books on... I yeah. just don't do it because it's too frustrating. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's an eye-opener. So apparently we suck. Why now, do we suck? I, I what are the well, criticisms? Well, we're, we're mean, and we, uh, we, we, we do bad things to our friends, which is kind of an interesting revelation. We uh, do bad it, things to our friends. I have a feeling that there is an organized movement here. These reviews are astroturfed. Wait, wait, now we're talking about ourselves. And that's another thing we get taken to task for because we talk about how great we are, right? And which makes me laugh because I think to myself, do, do people even listen to what we're saying? Well, I'm just <laughs> thinking here, like I said, it's a put-up job. You know, I mean, I don't mind somebody who says, I don't like it. Okay, everyone's entitled to their opinion. But when Oh, and it's you're a my monkey. Job, you're my monkey, by the way. Did you know that? You, Gene Steinberg, are my monkey. That's what people think. You, you go along with my mean uh, agenda. <laughs> Your mean agenda. Yeah, I mean, better let my girlfriend know I'm so mean. She'll be shocked. She'll be like, what? Really? You're mean? She always tells me what a sweetie I am. But, you know, maybe that's the problem. Maybe I'm not mean enough. Oh, well, it's all about us. We are mean. They'll say we're nice. Oh, boy. It's bizarre. World. Well, you know, it's uh, we live in a bizarro universe now. I get back to politics before that. I mean, just this past summer and everything, listening to the political commentary and the fact that people just get up there and say things that you know they can't possibly believe is true. Just total nonsense. No, people can believe anything. What do you mean? People believe anything, man. We know that. Some of the people here are the ones who are the opinion makers, the politicians. You know, talk show hosts, we understand, you know, some want to try to present information. Others are entertainers. And so they act wacky. Yeah. Well, because wacky sells. Which, if wacky sold, we should be rolling in dough. We're yes, not. I know. We're not wacky enough. We're mean, and we take things too seriously, but we're not wacky enough. But we're too wacky. Okay. Meanwhile, ultimately, it doesn't, you know, screw everybody. Well, we're going to do what we're going to do because we want to do it, and that's that. I would only say, look, listeners, if you really like the show, make your views known. You know, if you know of a person who wants to sponsor the show or has deep pockets, send them our way. But otherwise, we're not going to beg for anything. Now, we're going to travel around the world to find our guest this week. What have you found for us, David? 
do, do, do we need parachutes for this? No, so I think we're traveling around the world. The corner there, I'm going to get into it right now. Tell us about oh, the guest. Bad. Boom, boom. We have a guest. Wait, no one will talk to us though, because people won't come on the show because we're too hard on our guests. We are. You don't read the reviews. You have to read the reviews. Okay, I'm your monkey. Where's my banana? <laughs> I could, you know, I could answer that, and then we'd lose the few listeners we have left. If I actually answered that question, which I, I'm so tempted, no, it, it, no, I won't do it. Okay. I don't know. I have no idea. You move the cheese and the banana. I don't know where it is. Limburger cheese. I, that's the one that smells. Uh, I think they all sort of smell. Cheese is sort of stinky by definition. Okay. It's cheese. Yeah, it's Actually, sour. when you have cheese that don't doesn't smell, you shouldn't eat it because it's not good. Or it's fake cheese. That's cheese food. Right. Cheese. Food. Cheese. No, but they, they put the word food in there so you know it's it's edible, you see. But it's cheese food. They so you cheese should food it. to differentiate... From cheese, apparently. So we're we we are show food to to differentiate us from an actual show. Okay, we ladies are, and gentlemen, they said the moon is made of green cheese. We're now exposing the cheese for what it really is. It's uh, our our show is cheese, Asiago cheese, good stuff. Okay, we are traveling around the world. Yep, to Australia, to Australia, to Sydney, Australia, where I think did you see some of the video on the web? about these red dust storms down there. Wow. Unbelievable stuff. Just these incredible billowing clouds of like this red dust stuff that looks like something out of a movie. You couldn't make this stuff up. Some of the footage floating around the web. Insane. When I mentioned to my Susie that we were going to do an, an interview with a guy down in Australia, she's like, uh, is he in the middle of those storms? Even she's seen this video. Unbelievable. We have to ask him about that. I think that would be the most important question of the evening. Which the is, what about the dust storms? Yeah. I don't think that'll be the most important question of the evening, though. Tell us about the guest. What about him? What do you want to know? I don't He's going to come on any moment. We'll, we'll talk to him. Bill Schwalker. Actually, uh, this guy has been the topic of conversation on the forums for quite a while now. And we've been trying to get him on the show. Uh, we've been going back and forth because... The fact that he's in Sydney puts him a little ahead of us, like I think 11 hours ahead of me. So it's like 46 hours ahead of you. So actually, we're going to do some time traveling because even though we're recording this on a Wednesday, in his world is Thursday. So he emailed me this morning saying, I can't wait till we talk tomorrow. And I said, oh, so that's tomorrow, your time, but today for us. And then I realized how absolutely confusing that was. Not to him, but to me. And I'm easily confused, as you well know. Okay, coming up next, Bill Chalker, as we time travel on the PowerCast. I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels, you pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheek. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Okay, from Sydney, Australia, Bill Chalker, I have one question for you. What about those dust storms? Are they as bad as rumored? Certainly, it's been unprecedented for Sydney anyway, but I've seen dust storms like that out in New South Wales, you know, country New South Wales. But uh, for good old uh, Sydney town, it was unprecedented. uh, And uh, it certainly uh, was a dominant item of uh, all the evening uh, TV broadcasts. You know, it was was certainly spectacular. Yeah, the footage has been stunning. It looks like something on another planet. Mm -hmm. What's going on there, really? Yes, the item that cracked me up in the Sydney Morning Herald, that's the daily Sydney newspaper, uh, was that uh, one guy walking his uh, red setter dog lost it. So. (laughs) So we found you because there's been quite a bit of discussion about your work on our forums. So far, even though we have a really large contingent of listeners and fans in Australia, I think, and Gene, correct me if I'm wrong, we've never actually done a show about the UFO situation down there, which which looks to be fairly substantial, but assume that we don't know too much about this, Bill. Um, what's going on down there? An awful lot. An awful lot. Just for the sake of listeners, I'll, I'll just clarify a bit of my own background. I have um, been a long-time researcher uh, of the Australian scene and um, written, uh, I guess, a part of the history of the scene, which was which came out in 1996, and that's called The Oz Files, The Australian UFO Story. That was just essentially a, a, a distillation, probably a lot briefer than I wanted it to be, and I'm working on a much more detailed kind of historical take on the Australian scene. Uh, but uh, my involvement sort of goes back to, uh, I guess, as a kid during the 60s, my hometown up on the north coast of New South Wales had a lot of UFO reports, and it seemed to me as a kid, a kid at the time that practically every man his dog was having a UFO sighting. Uh, police officers were reporting them, that kind of stuff. It made the, the front page of the local papers without examiner and uh, that for a, a young teenager sort of got me kind of hooked into the subject and to me I, I had a bit of a scientific bent and uh, and the game as far as I was concerned was on uh, for the next uh, uh, many decades and uh, I've sort of been involved in one form or another uh, ever since and uh, 
I, I guess uh, my uh, I guess long lasting sort of interest has been sort of uh, pushed along because uh, it's not just uh, a strong scientific focus that I have on the subject. I'm also interested in in the history, the sociology, um, the folklore of it. You know, a whole range of different perspectives, and uh, but it's always uh, I guess the the potential of the subject to have a, a scientific kind of um, involvement potential that, that's always sort of drawn me back to the subject. Well, at least it should. And uh, very often, and we've talked about this on recent episodes, it, it seems that science uh, keeps a pretty great distance from this topic in general. Um, and scientific inquiry is often uh, not part of the process of researching this. But in terms of the, the range of types of sightings, and the types of crafts that have been seen, does this generally mirror similar types of uh, uh, sightings around the world? I mean, are you are you guys seeing the same kind of stuff that's being seen in South America, in the States, in the East? Of course, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I've been an advocate of is to push the global dimensions of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, mm -hmm. it, uh, it wasn't born and bred in the United States, as a lot of people like to think uh, this was a really a global phenomenon, but certainly the substantial popularization of the subject, the running was sort of uh, taken with the United States and uh, uh, it was I guess in many respects seen as a, a bit of a, a form of localised hysteria in the Americas, etc. when it first took off, but uh, any sort of uh, detailed research highlights that the phenomenon, whatever it is, uh, uh, was international in, in its extent and uh, that's one aspect that I've looked into very carefully here in Australia is the earlier pre-1947 sort of manifestations of the UFO phenomenon as well and uh, like a number of other sort of uh, historically orientated researchers worldwide, uh, it's pretty clear that the phenomenon was going on here well before 1947, and uh, and uh, that was the case, obviously, worldwide too. Regular listeners of the show know that uh, I grew up in South America and Venezuela, so uh, I've been particularly interested in the UFO situation as it's unfolded on, on, in the South American continent, and uh, you know we've also talked a lot about Mexico uh, on this show, and also. Anybody who looks into the history of, the, of UFO sightings knows that in you know the 50s there was a huge flap that was going on in Europe as well, not just so you know we on this show tend to take more of a global perspective, uh, assuming that you know now with the internet uh, we're trying to sort of track and discuss things that are happening around the globe. And, and actually, in looking over some of your most recent work, you've even expanded out your reach. To China, and there's been a lot of interesting stuff apparently going on in China in recent times. What's your take on you know now that you're looking at this at the global uh, you know level? Have you given consideration to uh, trying to create some sort of a, statist a statistical analysis of how this has played out around the world over time? Because this is a topic that comes up over and over again. Um, where researchers tend to really focus in on their local geographic region, yet it almost behooves someone to try to do even just the most basic statistical analysis of the last 60 years of sightings around the globe to see if there are any patterns emerge. Have you seen any such patterns in your work? 
to, to a limited extent, I've kind of left that kind of statistical take on the subject to others that are a lot more kind of qualified than I. You know, people like Dr. David Saunders, who was a, uh, um, you know, uh, sort of first came into the subject by the Content Commission report. Uh, he undertook quite a detailed uh, study using UFACAT and that kind of stuff. But all of these massive, large-scale studies, you know, having the problem of uh, how do you uh, screen the information, that kind of thing, and it's uh, always difficult. Uh, but it, it's quite clear... That in terms of researchers worldwide, that there have been global waves and lots of uh, sort of manifestations of uh, wave and flat phenomena at, at um, country levels, that kind of thing, and um, there have been attempts to kind of follow those kinds of patterns. And, and I guess looking at it globally, there have been kind of massive um, worldwide waves, and obviously the most distinctive ones have been, you know, the, the beginning uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, 1947 and 1952 was a sort of uh, a wave that sort of manifested on a number of different countries such as the United States and Australia and that kind of thing and uh, certainly 1954 was possibly the, the first of the big global kind of manifestations because not only was it fairly big time as you suggested down in South America, there was uh, uh, quite a huge wave going on in Australia as well and obviously through Europe, uh, particularly France and Italy and mm -hmm. right. so that was the first of the big global manifestations and then from my perspective there was 1957 was a pretty huge year at a global level and, and on it went um, particularly through uh, 1959. 1959 was huge here with the you know, famous sightings like the Father Gill sighting in Papua New Guinea and on it goes throughout the 60s and uh, 70s. So there, there has been that kind of global kind of happening to it. Well, Bill, in, if we look at what started happening in the States, like in the 70s, we start to see this significant uptick in reports of abduction cases, you know, involving the prototypical small grade beings, medical experiments. I mean, there, there are some reports of cases like the Betty and Barney Hill case that, that happened before the 70s. Did you see in Australia a similar correlation with abduction cases in the 70s? Uh, I guess when you look in detail at what took place in Australia, um, it was a little different in some respects in the sense that it was a slowly evolving scene. I've been looking at the abduction scene uh, since the 70s and uh, around about 1977 I kind of published a paper and presented it at a UFO conference here in Australia uh, that was called... Uh, beyond the sea, three down under, and basically it was kind of looking at the kind of obvious absence of uh, clear-cut abduction kind of narratives in Australia at that point, but already by then uh, we were starting to see cases that involved uh, missing time and uh, cases that could be, if you push the envelope a little bit, uh, maybe the, the fodder that sort of belonged to that abduction scene, but we had no clear-cut kind of case like Betty and Barney Hill or uh, Travis Walton, that kind of thing, uh, but just as I wrote that paper, that paper uh, almost uh, uh, at the same time, uh, we were starting to see very clear cases of missing time episodes and that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I guess there's always that kind of peril. Uh, is it a case of uh, sort of creating the problem in many respects, or are we just being more attentive at it and, and discovering these kind of cases as we go along? But irrespective of what the mechanism was, uh, by the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was kind of a, a 
a gradual kind of um, awareness that uh, uh, we had those kinds of cases occurring here, but they just weren't kind of uh, percolating through. And uh, I, I guess one interesting analysis to look at is this uh, uh, concept of Jacques Belize, this hilltop curve kind of thing. You know, the stranger the case becomes, uh, the less likely you are going to see that. And that was certainly prevalent in terms of the Australian experience that uh, these high strangeness cases were much more difficult to uh, flush out of the woodwork. But as awareness became uh, more and more obvious, particularly um, in, in the United States and out of South America, that kind of stuff, as the, the concept became more and more obvious, um, it was clear that uh, those kind of cases were occurring in Australia as well. Can you give us some examples of uh, what you referred to as the high strangeness cases? These end up being really interesting on a lot of levels. They tend to sort of break down our expectations and understanding, you know, basic perception of what, what's going on. So are there some specific episodes that you can cite in some detail where you see that high strangeness element coming into play? Well, I, I, I guess it sort of brings it home in, in terms of, with abduction cases, one of the problems we always had was that while we were starting to get large numbers of them here in Australia, um, most of them, like a lot of the cases in the United States, uh, seem to be almost bereft of hard physical evidence. Um, mm-hmm. And that was always a bit of a, a problem for, for somebody like me who was kind of sort of trained in the sciences, etc., and sort of worked as a scientist, that kind of thing. So uh, we're looking for physical evidence, and uh, these kind of things weren't sort of clashing up a big way in, in that respect. But Two cases came along, uh, particularly in the early 90s, that really uh, made me rethink uh, the drift that I was experiencing. Uh, a number of us uh, were, were kind of arguing that uh, perhaps the abduction end of the spectrum, the, the very high strangest type cases, told us more about the human condition than it did about UFOs. And we were starting to contemplate that, well, maybe a lot of this abduction stuff was amenable to. Uh, psychological kind of analyses and that kind of stuff. So uh, while a lot of individual cases were quite compelling, we, we started to think, well, perhaps uh, let's exhaust the, the sociological or psychological explanations first, and if anything comes out of the wash at the other end, uh, then maybe we've got some fodder to suggest that this is a real part of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, I guess that debate was played out not only in America, but also you know in Europe, England, uh, and elsewhere where, where abduction cases were occurring. But uh, for us, I guess the dam burst somewhat, particularly in 1992, in particular with uh, the Kelly Carhill case that um, was a, a major kind of abduction case. And, and uh, that, for the first time, was kind of like a potentially had a, a multi-witness dimension to it that had physical evidence, that kind of thing. And, and so for the first time, we were kind of uh, sort of feeling that uh, we had a really solid physical evidence case. To correct that, that, that was 1993, the actual abduction case occurred. And I was actually first contacted by Kelly Carhill. Uh, uh, she'd tried to get some uh, interest in her experience uh, down in Victoria where the event took place in the Dandenong foothills uh, just outside of Melbourne. She wasn't too successful in respect of that. And then she started talking to me here in Sydney. And it was immediately obvious to me that here we were dealing with a case that had a really strong potential for confirming the physical reality of alien abduction claims because uh, not only was she describing a very intense kind of experience that had sort of abduction dimensions to it, but she was also reporting that there was another car with at least three people further down the road. So therefore, we had the potential of an independently confirmed uh, abduction experience. So uh, given that uh, I saw the potential of it being a, a really strong case, particularly in this more controversial high strangeness area, I uh, 
contacted a group down in, in Melbourne, Florida Research Australia, which at that time I felt uh, was at least demonstrating a potential to be able to cope with these sort of high strangeness cases that had possibly physical evidence aspects as well and asked them to, to uh, perhaps uh, look into it if Kelly chose to contact them. And so I suggested to her that she contact uh, PRA and uh, uh, investigate and uh, stay in contact with me as well. Now, she did that, and uh, unfortunately, with the benefit of hindsight, if I had that uh, decision left to me again, I would not have chosen to uh, pass that case on to uh, PRA because uh, uh, given... The passage of more than a decade, we're yet still to see the uh, the detail of their investigation. Now, they've indicated uh, that they did do a very substantial investigation and found physical evidence, that kind of thing, uh, trace marks, that kind of stuff, but uh, they've yet to reveal the nature of that detail other than through a few uh, limited bits of information, uh, which well, to me was quite depressing. So. Let's rewind for a moment because let's let's make the assumption here, it's probably a safe assumption, that there are lots of people who don't know about this case. Could you lay out the basics of it for our listeners? Just in brief, uh, Kelly and her husband uh, were returning from uh, staying with some friends, etc., and were, were heading home, and uh, they were driving along a, a road. Um, it's called a Narry Warren, the actual location, but it's kind of out, out of suburban Melbourne, and they were returning home late at night. And uh, Now, that part of it is fairly fragmented. Um, there was an indication between the both of them that they'd seen what appeared to be a UFO, that kind of stuff, and then, uh, like a lot of the classic bunny, mix of these sorts of cases, uh, uh, there was fragmentary memory, and uh, really for Kelly, uh, it didn't come back in a big way until she was driving through that same location a week or two later, and then it basically hit her like a 10-ton truck. Uh, suddenly, she was kind of overwhelmed by the recollections that something very bizarre had taken place here, and it was starting to emerge in, in, in a huge kind of uh, way for her, and uh, clearly had a lot of... Um, she had a lot of problems coping with the, the onslaught of all this kind of sudden recollection of a of a what it appeared to her to be a, an encounter with a, a, a UFO and that kind of stuff. And her husband sort of up to a certain point supported her, but uh, he had a Muslim background and uh, she was an Australian girl and, and, and there was a bit of a sort of an uneasy kind of dynamic between them and, and basically her husband appeared to not be that interested in what she had to say. Uh, ultimately, he became more interested in what the second party that was uh, subsequently discovered had to say about it, but I'll get into that in a moment. But so, so basically, she was kind of on her own to a certain extent in terms of dealing with this, and so she made contact with me, and, and by that stage, she her recollection was pretty much on the basis of seeing uh, this craft uh, land, uh, being on the side of the road uh, in a paddock area, stepping out of the car, observing further down the road another car with at least three people also uh, out of their car and looking at this very large object um, that was in a field just off the road. And then uh, the frightening aspects of it started to emerge where there appeared to be a number of beings that appeared in front of the object and a number of these were separating into two groups. Uh, some were going up towards the second uh, car and the three people there, and the others were appearing to move uh, directly from the object towards her and her husband. And then it becomes very fragmented and very frightening. It was really quite a, 
a striking episode. Actually, when I included details of uh, this uh, in my book, The Oz Files, that came out in '96, um, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people actually commented upon the fact that they felt you know, this, this episode was pretty frightening for them. And, and uh, I, t- I tried to do it in a fairly objective kind of way, but it, it was a, a fairly confronting encounter. Now, this kind of slowly emerged, and, and, and eventually the detail was was such that there was an indication that Kelly had had missing time. Uh, and uh, when when the PRA people started to get involved with it, they were initially feeding me uh, information about it in detail why. And, and what I asked them to concentrate on was whether or not uh, they could confirm the presence of this second car and the three people. And uh, they started to do their uh, investigations, and, and then the feedback I got was that they did find the second car and were able to confirm that, yes, three people were involved, a bank manager, uh, his wife, and, and the wife's girlfriend. So that we had the presence of three people, and eventually the, the investigation highlighted that basically Kelly seemed to have had some sort of fragmented on-board experience, that, um, and, that, and that the events seemed to concentrate on the women. The women themselves in the second car had uh, recollections of on-board experiences. Uh, both the men, Kelly's husband and the bank manager, seemed to have very fragmentary memories of seemingly partial recollections of seeing the UFO, that kind of thing, but uh, and being restrained. Some res- Man, it's a very fragmented aspect here, but it seemed clear that uh, the women uh, had the most kind of confronting part of it, and both sets of women seemed to uh, recollect gynecological complications, uh, mm. uh, that kind of thing. And, and ultimately, it also highlighted that uh, apparently a third car was also found for down the road where there was a single individual that also um, described the experience. So here we had for the first time a major UFO event witnessed by three different independent groups of people that suggested that, that there was a, an abduction scenario played out, particularly on the women, and um, we had physical evidence. Hey neighbors, the old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. I'll tell you what, we're talking to Bill Chalker, UFO researcher. And we will have a link, by the way, on the PowerCast website to his blog. And he has a couple of books out on the subject. Most recently, it's Hair of the Alien, DNA and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abduction. We have a link to that book because it's still available from Amazon Books. And he has an older book from 1996 that is rather difficult to get. But I guess if you go onto Amazon, you can find almost anything. You certainly can. It's, it's out there, so in one way or another. I wanted to ask you something here. 
obviously one of the things that David and I get caught up in discussing on the Paracast is the fact that the interactions amongst UFO researchers in America and in Great Britain particularly aren't too friendly. We have a lot of difficulties, you know, so many factions with different points of view. So do you see the same kind of personality conflicts down under? Yes, I've got to say yes. Uh, I think up to about the uh, early 1980s, I used to have a, a major role in, in um, UFO groups and that kind of thing. But basically by then I was getting heartily sick of the politicking that used to play out in uh, UFO groups. But I, I, I called it a fairly generic effect, they, I called it the club syndrome, because whenever uh, groups come together uh, uh, of any persuasion, they're studying anything, they, there's always this kind of politicking that plays out, but it does seem to be particularly toxic when it comes to UFO groups from time to time. So, so by the early 80s, I had sort of really deferred to a, a much looser networking type of arrangement, and, uh, and that kind of networking arrangement, rather than being involved in a very formal way with organised UFO groups, to me worked extremely well. And, and so the group that I was coordinating, the, the UFO Investigation Centre here in Sydney, I, I kind of changed it from a public kind of UFO group to a loose networking arrangement. And that uh, was possibly the best move that it ever made. It, it allowed us to at least choose to uh, be separate from a lot of this kind of politicking that used to go on. But uh, having mentioned the Kelly Carhill case, that, that became a case that did uh, uh, suffer from this kind of problem with, uh, between some UFO groups, and particularly given uh, the fact that the BRE group decided not to share the research that they did on this kind of case, it, it really was frustrating for me because the case was a, a major case that had, for the first time, really substantial physical dimensions to it. And uh, so that kind of um, caused me to ensure that if a case of a similar nature occurred, I wouldn't be going down that pathway again, deferring to another group. I'd take on the investigation myself and, and, and coordinate it in detail. And that's what I did essentially with the Kudu Curie case that played out from Sydney. And here again, there was this case that uh, it, when you talk about high strangers, it was extraordinarily strange and highly confronting, and yet it had this uh, item of physical evidence that uh, allowed us to uh, go down again the scientific physical evidence path for alien abductions uh, narratives. And it's probably been the most rewarding investigation that I've done in terms of uh, yielding sort of really interesting data that went to the heart of uh, the UFO abduction narrative. So uh, for me, at least, it was re rewarding. I guess I can thank uh, group politicking and group uh, difficulties for that in some respects. Now, in terms of the specifics of some of the, uh, the physical evidence regarding this case, when you said that there was this other car with this bank manager, his wife, and their girlfriend, I, I, I take it that this, these people came forward? You were able to actually interview and identify these people? No, I've no, I was never able to identify that they came through Phenomena Research Australia, the Victorian group that I mentioned, and uh, they've never uh, allowed or enabled other groups to verify uh, those people's existence. Um, I've got no reason to doubt that they did the investigation that they claimed to work, but unfortunately uh, no group has been able to uh, verify the extent of the work that PRA claimed that they did, and uh, really? they, haven't, they haven't released a, a report that they claimed to have done on the case, etc. So uh, Essentially, we've had to rely in that case on essentially Kelly Carhill's narrative and her take on the whole thing. And I, you know, I applaud her courage in terms of coming forward. But ultimately, uh, given the nature of the event, uh, 
we could have been able to highlight the fact that we had multiple witnesses here um, and uh, she wouldn't have had to have stood alone as the main contact person with regard to this case. And uh, But unfortunately, that's the way it played out. Um, the only person who has been able to be scrutinised independently has been Kelly Carlhill. And uh, uh, so, as far as the second group, um, it's only been PRA that's been able to make contact uh, with uh, the group. With them. So those, so that those three people never attempted to contact Kelly directly? Kelly certainly tried to contact them, but uh, basically um, wasn't able to, and uh, PRA um, didn't facilitate that contact between her and the other group of people. There was some indication or suggestion, apparently, in a letter I did the rounds that uh, those people tried to contact me now via some telephone calls, but having kept contact uh, or copies of all my uh, phone answering sort of service uh, responses and all the calls that came through, uh, I haven't been able to verify that claim. So, uh, you know, had they contacted me, um, I would have been right into that kind of situation. But unfortunately, uh, nothing uh, appears to indicate that they contacted me uh, from my end the equation anyway, but uh, it, that was particularly kind of frustrating, but uh, as to why PRA would choose to sit on that information, that's something that you perhaps need to ask them. Right. All right. Well, let's move on beyond them because uh, in terms of, well, let's get back to the physical evidence issue, uh, you've indicated that there appears to have been some sort of gyne- gynecological procedures done. Did she have physical marks from this? Yes, Kelly certainly did, and um, she had a, a like a triangular pattern mark on her abdomen. Uh, there was uh, medical records to confirm that she had uh, gynecological problems that seemed to go beyond the norm. So there was physical evidence in respect of that that we could at least confirm with regard to to that. Uh, also, too, uh, I've been kicking myself in in, in hindsight that uh, one of the specialties I undertook in the subject, particularly during the 70s and 80s, was that uh, I became kind of recognised as a kind of a, a specialist in UFO landing cases and physical traces and that kind of stuff. So that's the other thing that was really important about the at least experience that there was physical evidence found at the site, um, some marks where the uh, ground had been affected and also suggestions of magnetic anomalies, that kind of thing. With the wisdom of hindsight, I'd wished I'd gone down there and verified those myself, but at that time, PRA indicated that they were doing a lot of field work, a lot of uh, analysis, that kind of thing, and uh, it, it appeared that all that information would become kind of readily available to uh, other researchers, including myself, given that I was the one that facilitated their involvement in the case in the first place. But unfortunately, uh, that, that turned out not to be. And uh, so we were left with a tantalizing indication that here we had uh, a very high strangeness case verified independently by people, but uh, still uh, somewhat limited in terms of the information. Was she ever uh, put under in, under any kind of hypnotic regression? Uh, she was. Basically, Kelly's recollections have remained fairly consistent. Um, not a huge amount has sort of come out, uh, to my knowledge, in terms of elaborating on a, a substantial onboard kind of experience. Um, there was a lot of fragmentary information suggested that she had been in some sort of onboard environment, but uh, uh, largely it was the experience seemed to be so confronting to her and so frightening that you know a lot of that kind of seemed to be resisted. The second group of people, courtesy of the anecdotal information of any in the early days from PRA suggested that the other other ladies uh, in the second car had a more substantially recollected onboard experience. So it's uh, particularly frustrating for me that you know, I've got to do this in a fairly 
anecdotal way because we don't have the, the detail that allegedly PRA got on this case. Um, in terms of her psychological profile, was uh, Kelly somebody who was interested in this topic in any way before this incident? No, no, no. She, she um, certainly seemed to be uh, somebody that was a bit of a, a UFO innocent and uh, she, she seemed to be involved in, in, I guess, trying to get some sort of theological kind of focus, you know, in terms of religion and that kind of stuff. You know, she uh, had a bit of a Christian background, but she was married to somebody with a Muslim background, that kind of thing. And uh, so she was going through a, a bit of a, I guess, a religious kind of journey. And uh, I guess it, this kind of experience uh, was pretty confronting for her and uh, certainly outside of her normal scheme of experiences. Looking at uh, the write-up on the com, there are some interesting bits of information that, that seem to come out where uh, she says things like, they've got no souls, and she's apparently screaming this at one point, and then you know, there's this discussion about there being a whole bunch of them in the field with them gliding off the ground, and, you know, where she, she has a sense, then, as you read, that she, she senses malevolence from them. When, when you spoke with her, what was your, your impression of sort of her memories of this and the effect it had on her. And, and along the same lines, Bill, have you been in touch with her you know, since then? Has she had any other kinds of episodes that are even vaguely uh, in the same kind of category, even like UFO sightings? Uh, well, she, she uh, had a number of different kind of experiences, but nothing on the order of what was described in that report that you can access on my website. Um, right. Um, you know, she had those kind of bedroom or home kind of invasion experiences with that, those figures, that kind of thing. Uh, she uh, had taken a, a UFA photograph at one point uh, later on. So, so, so she, she had a range of kinds of uh, different experiences, but nothing of the confronting order of uh, the initial experiences. Uh, but basically, she became like a, uh, a kind of lightning rod for uh, people with similar experiences because she did take that kind of step to go into the public domain uh, under a the name Kelly Cardell, uh, and, and so uh, for her it was kind of a, a major journey, and, and, and in some respects, um, you know, she became a bit of a crusader on it in some respects, and and uh, lectured widely that kind of thing, uh, highlighting that you know the, the nature of the experience too. So, and a lot of people contacted her, and ultimately uh, for her, uh, I, I think she went down the rabbit hole, so to speak, you know, Alice in Wonderland type thing, uh, and confronted a lot of the kind of dynamics that a lot of people uh, find really toxic about the UFO field. You know, uh, there's a huge cross-section of people and uh, organisations contained within the so-called UFO uh, subject, and uh, uh, some of those people are very good and some of those people are uh, borderline <laughs> toxic. So um, yeah, uh, that, I think, started to tell on Kelly, and ultimately she became pretty frustrated with the UFO field, and uh, in the end, um, she pretty much dropped out. And one day, a few years ago, I got a call from her uh, saying, do you, "Do you want all my archives?" And uh, you know, I'm uh, leaving Australia, and um, she um, passed her collection of material on to me, and um, I still keep them here uh, under archive, and um, she's now. Uh, out of out of Australia, and so so she, she's not easy to contact, but but uh, she she's still still interested in the subject, but uh, and still attests to her experience that kind of thing. So. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. 
That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Bill Chalker, UFO researcher from Australia. We're focusing on UFO cases in Australia. We'll also be talking about UFO cases in, well, China. We'll get to that too. David? Well, I'm just curious, Bill. Did she remain married to the husband? No, no. Uh, some people argue that uh, perhaps the pressure involved in the experience uh, led to that breakup because she uh, wasn't really supporting her. As I mentioned earlier, he seemed more interested in what the other male in the second car had to say about the experience and not very interested in what all the women had to say about uh, the experience. Um, so he was getting that information anecdotally, courtesy of the PRA investigation, but Kelly sort of argued that he, he wasn't very supportive of her. And, and I, I, in some respects, I guess um, the UFO experience was a bit of a template in terms of the pressures that she was under in her own kind of relationship. And obviously mm. I'm not qualified, nor do I really want to go to to the detail of the private side of it, but uh, ultimately uh, they did break up and separated and uh, and then uh, uh, she's moved on from that relationship. Mm. So um, in terms of similar events like this in Australia, I mean, so you have this one standout case. Did this create a situation by where there were copycat cases? I mean, did you, did you in, in, in tracking what was going on down there, did this precipitate other types of cases with, where people were making similar types of claims? Uh, it's hard to argue, perhaps, but uh, you know, there, were, there were some cases that uh, that started to come out. Uh, we did have an avalanche of cases, um, you know, having tracked the, the abduction phenomenon sort of roll out in Australia from the 70s in particular. Uh, we had a lot of cases that came out throughout the 80s and into the 90s and that kind of stuff. But as for Kelly's experience, uh, I guess hers was the most public. Uh, hers was the kind of Travis Walton type case where there was a lot of publicity associated with it, that kind of thing, and uh, mm -hmm. so it had that kind of impact, but as for creating copycat cases, it's, I, I don't think it had that kind of effect. Um, I think uh, Australian culture is, is a lot more pragmatic, I think, and, uh, than perhaps, can I say, in terms of American culture, uh, we, we're kind <laughs> of, uh, you know, we've got one of our more famous sayings, is she'll be right, mate, that kind of thing, you know, uh, you know, no worries, that kind of stuff, you know, we tend to be very pragmatic, and, uh, and, and so I think Things happen, uh, or as I, I, I don't know whether we can 
set it in American audience, you know, shit happens, you know, things, things do play out and uh, <laughs> people just sort of take these things on board but uh, and uh, things uh, slowly emerge. Uh, there was one case that just as I finished the Oz files and, uh, and I was submitting the manuscript to the publisher, uh, uh, a case emerged from my hometown of Grafton on the far north coast of New South Wales. Now, this is uh, referred to as a lonely case, the name of the family, um, and it was a very complicated abduction narrative um, and one of the things that concerned me immediately was that there was a very rapid kind of um, sort of exposure of this subject in the public eye and sense of uh, in very short order uh, the family were appearing in one of the national uh, women's magazines uh, with a full a double page spread uh, photograph of the family, uh, husband, wife, and the kids, and that kind of stuff. And to me, uh, I just did not. I was very uncomfortable with that dynamic in the sense that, you know, given the nature of the experience that was being described, uh, it seemed to me that uh, uh, these people should have or needed more time to uh, uh, deal with this in a, in a kind of a private way rather than expose themselves to this sort of nationwide publicity. And that case turned out to be a, a kind of a fairly messy kind of situation. Uh, there was certainly a, a very complex and descriptive kind of abduction narrative on board experience, that kind of thing. So again, you know, we had another kind of controversial case, but it was uh, uh, those people uh, ended up having some difficulties again, and uh, ultimately they uh, kind of went underground, so to speak, and uh, they're very difficult to locate these days. Hmm. Going back, you know, look, you, you, you talk about research that you've done pre-1947, cases that go back to pre-1947, and it makes me wonder about um, going back quite a bit with the fact that there in Australia you have this indigenous people, the Aborigines, and I'm wondering, you know, when you start to look at these indigenous peoples around the world, especially like in South America, you find that there are obviously tales of interactions with beings that come down from the sky that go back, in some cases, thousands of years. Um, is there a similar type of correlation with the Aborigine people in Australia? Are, are, is there mythology that's supportive of uh, an interaction with an advanced race of beings that in some way facilitates, helps, uses, enslaves uh, humans? Okay, so any kind of indigenous culture, and particularly um, from my own experience, the Aboriginal culture here in Australia, uh, one has to be extremely careful to impose Western viewpoints on, uh, you know, the uh, legends and narratives that emerge from indigenous cultures. Um, and the Aborigines themselves have a very kind of fixed uh, interpretation of their beliefs and that kind of thing, and, and there's always this concern of uh, Westerners and uh, mm -hmm. you know, white people uh, uh, or colonialists sort of putting narratives on on their kind of uh, religious uh, and legendary beliefs, uh, but certainly a lot of the things that come out from Aboriginal narratives uh, certainly uh, uh, approximate or are very familiar or, or certainly uh, very striking when it comes to uh, examining these kinds of uh, abduction or contact type narratives and uh, some of the strongest uh, thing to emerge, and, the, and this is kind of a worldwide phenomenon, uh, emerges from the, uh, the shaman initiation type of accounts, uh, uh, and this is a worldwide phenomenon, uh, shamanism, and uh, when you get to uh, the Australian kind of experience with them, uh, shamans in our cultures were often referred to as Aboriginal 
men of high degree and you know you have this kind of uh, westernized uh, generic take on the shamans um, in primitive cultures and the classes which doctors and it's almost a, a very negative kind of stereotyping that goes on but in fact uh, the shamans of most of these kind of indigenous cultures were very powerful individuals within their own societies and and so the the term Aboriginal men of high degree is a very appropriate kind of uh, title to give to these people because they were extraordinarily powerful figures within their own tribes and their own cultures. And right. when you start to look at the initiation rituals and the initiation experiences that Aboriginal shamans experience, uh, these experiences are very striking analogues of, of what we see today in the form of alien abduction experiences where you've got this experience of the uh, initiate being seized by extraordinary beings, often taken into aerial flight or up into the um, uh, the home of the um, uh, the sky being, and uh, exposed to all sorts of uh, extraordinary experiences, and then being brought back. And when they're brought back, they are changed, and they're somehow different. And uh, quite often, they've even got to use the analogy of implants. They've even got objects inside their bodies with average elsewhere often a form of kind of magical crystals inside their body, that kind of stuff. And, um, mm. and, that, and, that, and from that point on, they were somehow stamped with the uh, uh, contact or the experience of being connected with the sky beings. And so, and so there's a very striking kind of parallel there and just how far you can push that analogy, it's difficult to say. But I, I did write about that fairly extensively in terms of even writing a book or not a book, rather an article called uh, Abductions, a Shamanic Perspective. And uh, and that certainly drew a lot of uh, uh, interest and a lot of, I guess, slack and controversy from uh, some of my fellow researchers, etc. But I, I was certainly interested in, in, in that, and I felt that you couldn't ignore the correspondences between shamanic claims worldwide and alien abduction experiences. There right. seem to be too, right. many, too many similarities. Um, do the shamanic members of the Aboriginal tribe, do they in, um, engage in any sort of um, hallucinogenic consumption as sort of, a, you know, a, a mirroring the use of, for example, ayahuasca? No. Now, in the Australian Aboriginal culture, um, the use of hallucinogens was, was not evident. And um, hmm. uh, I know it's um, a focus of particularly South American types, Mexican shamans, that kind of thing. Um, right. in shamans where the, the use of hallucinogens uh, created, uh, or well, may have assisted some of these sort of transitions into these uh, otherworldly shamanic experiences. But mm -hmm. uh, the same sorts of experiences were going on with Australian Aborigines, but without the assistance of the hallucinogens. So. Um, to me, that sort of argued that you know there might have been some objective reality to some of these experiences. Right, right, and that's what I was curious about because just in doing some some basic research, I hadn't found any reference to the Aborigines in, in deploying any kind of psychoactive drugs for altered consciousness. And I was just wondering maybe there was something I was missing in looking through this, but you, no, you sort no. of you sort of confirmed that, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. But yeah, it's um, certainly a very powerful kind of narrative. That, uh, certainly, the, the I've had lots of contacts with uh, Aboriginals um, over the decades, etc., and even uh, more recent figures who had kind of connections with shamanic roles, etc. It's kind of a, a sadly a bit of a dying career path um, amongst Aboriginals. Uh, the, the shamanic kind of figure, or the shaman mm -hmm. type figure, and. Uh, 
one, uh, there were even uh, women that were participating in those kinds of roles and I was approached by an Aboriginal woman, uh, Lorraine Maffey Williams, who uh, had that kind of role and she wanted me to write a, a bit of a shamanic kind of biography of her, but by the, by the stage that I encountered her, she was pretty much a kind of a crossover figure between Western culture and Aboriginal figures, and mm. a somewhat controversial person, a lovely lady, but uh, uh, to me she was kind of bridging the path between the Western and her own kind of culture and taking on board a lot of the experiences of both, and so there was this kind of mix of new age and traditional Aboriginal kinds of experiences as well, but she had these kind of abduction-related experiences herself and was very much into the UFO phenomenon. And and, and separate to her, there were lots of local uh, settlements and that kind of stuff and quite isolated townships and uh, settlements of Aborigines that had ongoing UFO experiences, that kind of thing. So that, that was fairly common as well. Phil, you wrote several books, the most recent of which is Hair of the Alien DNA and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abduction. Now, we're going to break in a moment for our hourly pause. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? That's a, a fairly long story, which I can encapsulate in this a, a little detail, at least anyway. Okay. What's the basic focus? Well, for me, uh, the focus of Hair of the Alien was uh, evolved from one specific experience with a, uh, a gentleman of uh, a Lebanese background whose family had come to Australia um, during the 80s um, and uh, settled in Australia. Now, uh, he came from a Christian Maronite background uh, from Lebanon and was completely kind of unaware of the UFO phenomenon or the abduction phenomenon. And for him, uh, he had an experience in 1988, uh, which was very much, I guess, in the mould of a Whitley Strieber type of abduction experience. But for Peter Curry, uh, that experience that took place in Sydney, for him, uh, having no kind of awareness really, in much of the UFO scene, none of the abduction scene, that stage, he had no kind of compass to uh, bring to bear as to what this experience was all about. And uh, for him, it was just life-shattering in the sense of being uh, having this uh, experience that took place in his family home. Uh, his father and uh, older brother were present in the house as well, and for them, their only awareness of it was the uh, was Peter coming to them in the wake of the experience and telling them that he'd had this experience with these strange people uh, that didn't seem human that uh, seemed to stick a needle into his head and having this kind of missing time element and being very frightened by it and uh, and they could clearly see that he had an injury to his head where he claims that a needle was stuck in his head and uh, they, they themselves during this episode had like and um, was like missing time or sort of becoming aware of like the fog in time where they they had no recollection of what occurred during the time that Peter had his abduction experience so for them there there was kind of a partial cooperation that something pretty weird had happened while Peter had had this experience himself and then he went on to his own doctor to check out the the injury to his, to his head. She laughed it off, uh, just saying that perhaps it occurred during his own work environment. He worked in the building industry uh, and maybe injured himself on a, on a nail, you know, uh, Peter kind of rejected that analysis and uh, given the Christian Maronite background, um, his own family suggested, or maybe it was Saint Charbel, the saint of uh, of uh, the Maronite religion uh, that he had an encounter with and clearly Peter just couldn't figure this because these figures were quite odd, uh, very much of the 
grey type and also these short dark type figures, stubby figures, etc. They, you know, they certainly didn't look like uh, what you'd expect a, a, a religious saint to appear. Uh, and so for him, he, co- he couldn't come up with an explanation as to what had happened to him. And then one day, he and his uh, fiance Vivian, were driving along and uh, uh, driving past a uh, petrol station, I think you call them gas stations over there, um, mm-hmm. and there was a, uh, a huge poster, uh, and on that poster was just a, a face, which we all now familiar with the Wiki Streber Grey Alien face, and that's all right. it was. Okay, and, before and we, we get into the face and what they saw in the experience and seeing that sign and that picture, we're talking to Bill Chalker, UFO researcher from Sydney, Australia. We pick it up on the other side of the Paracast. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 866 596 6134. That number again, 1 866 596 6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two G's. Goldbug.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. UFO researcher Bill Chalker joining us on the Paracast this week. He's author of such books as Hair of the Alien, DNA, and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abduction, his most recent book written several years ago. is still available from the major book resellers. Bill, before we took the break, you were talking about these people who saw the big picture on the road of the traditional gray alien, which I can imagine under the circumstances ought to be frightening, frightening beyond belief. So what happened next? Well, for Peter, it was just shocking to, to see uh, this face that he encountered in his experience. Uh, and uh, his wife, was, or his fiance at that stage, uh, was uh, aware of what he had described uh, to her. And, uh, and they, they were trying to figure out what this was all about. But uh, as it turned out, this was part of a clever kind of advertising campaign for the Patriot Back edition of Wiki Streeter's Book Communion. And it was. Through that process, eventually uh, the ad campaign would highlight that uh, this was about a book. Uh, and uh, uh, eventually when Peter and Vivian established that, uh, uh, Vivian got hold of the book and, and she was the one that read it first. And, and she said, Peter, you've got to read this book. You know, this is exactly what you, you were telling me all about, you know. And uh, uh, Peter was never a big reader, and, but eventually he did kind of look through the book and, and pretty much read it. But uh, for him, there were many features of Struder's narrative that coincided with what had happened to him, but also uh, just as many differences. And so uh, for him, at least, uh, he'd found a bit of a, a connection that uh, maybe his experience was about this so-called alien abduction thing and that he better find out about what this whole abduction subject was all about because for him it was something completely foreign. Uh, but the more he got to know about the subject, he realised that uh, this 
appeared to be what had occurred to him. And uh, uh, and uh, Peter Trump was a, a special individual, like a very strong uh, individual, not only physically, but I think mentally, that where he was able to kind of cope with the, uh, the traumatic nature of the experience. But also he had this kind of conviction that he wanted to uh, help other people. And uh, ultimately he went on to develop a, a support group, which he called the... Uh, uh, UFO Experience Support Association. It was probably one of the best uh, manifestations of the support group concept in Australia. And, and, and so he developed uh, this kind of support group. Plus he had a lot of uh, health professionals and scientist types, etc. And I had this kind of, uh, I guess, arm's length kind of connection to the group. But ultimately I got to know Peter uh, uh, a little bit. And then uh, it was through that process that he then subsequently made me aware of, uh, and this is a a year or two after it occurred, a subsequent experience. I mean, like a lot of other abductees, he had a number of experiences, but for him, one of the most difficult to deal with was an experience that he had in 1992. And this involved, uh, some weeks prior to that experience, he had been involved on a, on job site assault. Uh, there were a number of people that were trying to steal some of his uh, building labour equipment, and he tried to intervene and uh, was involved uh, in a fight and, and uh, injured uh, fairly severely with a, a, uh, a strike to the head with, a, with, a, with a, I think a, a shovel or something of that date, one of his own shovels that they were trying to uh, steal. And uh, he uh, had to have you know, some hospital uh, intervention and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and so ultimately uh, he was off, off his job there for uh, a number of months and uh, it was during that period where he was convalescing from those injuries uh, that this experience had occurred. Now, some people argue that perhaps uh, the medication that he was on led to this experience, but uh, the kind of medication he was on had no kind of hallucinogenic history uh, that would give this kind of experience and plus the physical uh, evidence that emerged from you, you can't reconcile that very readily. But I, well, uh, Bill, before you continue, do you know specifically what kind of medication? We're talking about pain medication? Uh, Penadine, Penadine Forte. It's a, mm. it's a pretty strong uh, pain medication you can get here through pres- uh, a doctor's prescription. And, uh, you know, I've looked at all the uh, effects that all this kind of medication can have, and none of it had a history or connection associated with hallucinations, that kind of stuff. So okay. uh, that's one thing about Peter's experience. He did allow me to uh, investigate this in a pretty intense kind of way. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I give full credit to Peter, you know, like he was so certain of his experiences that he, you know, he didn't have any problem with any kind of follow-up, you know, no matter how uh, forensic or confronting it was, uh, you know, we we certainly uh, covered it in a lot of intense kind of detail and, and probably can understand why when we get to the nature of the experience because uh, what he described is that while he was still convalescing, uh, uh, he, he, he got up to take his wife who, at that stage to uh, go to uh, the train station to, uh, she, she could go to work. She was the uh, breadwinner at that stage. And uh, he drops her off at the train station about 7 in the morning, gets back at home. It's about 7.30 or thereabouts. And then he, he then goes back to bed. And he feels as though he may have gone to, to sleep at that stage. He's uncertain at that element, but certainly within a short period of time that he's, he's disturbed by what appeared to be like a, uh, a presence or, or some sort of sensation of something putting pressure on, on the bed. And he uh, immediately uh, wakes up and uh, is 
at that point aware of the presence of two uh, females in his room. And uh, these looked kind of human, but had attributes that seemed to make them pretty odd, particularly uh, they were both naked, which was pretty confronting. Uh, and some people argue that you know, they might have had the element of a sexual fantasy, but uh, uh, this to Peter was no sexual fantasy because it was very confronting, and, and he was not you know, in a situation where he would be wanting that kind of experience at that point anyway, because uh, he's recovering from this injury and that kind of thing, and not in perfect shape. And he he um, described the female, the blonde female, as having this. Uh, blonde hair, appear to have blue eyes, uh, a large uh, angular face, a very severe angular face in the sense that the chin was very pointy uh, and the eyes uh, appeared to be about two to three times the size of larger than human, uh, average human eyes. And as it turned out, she had a strength that was pretty confronting, like, you know, he's a very strong man and uh, this woman had a strength that was way beyond his, which disturbed you no end. And, in addition, there was a, another. The other woman would, appeared to be a looked like an Asian woman uh, with a dark, short, page boy cropped hair, with what appeared to be almost like black eyes, as if there was no pupils. Uh, so each of them had attributes that seemed odd, but one could suspect that they could pass as your average person walking down the street uh, at a bit of a push. But what the place was pretty confronting. Uh, they claimed that the uh, blonde, the uh, woman mounted him on the stomach, and there was no sexual element to this in the, in, that he could recollect. And uh, she appeared to pull him to her he, her breast and tried to uh, keep doing that. And uh, Peter uh, has one problem: he, he gets kind of claustrophobic in confined situations, and he, he was kind of shocked by the whole episode. And he started to uh, try and push this woman off. That's when he found that she was incredibly strong. Uh, and, uh, and that's when it started to turn. It was partly shocking and then became uh, a bit concerning and frightening to him. And then he tried to repel her, and eventually, because he couldn't, uh, he ended up biting her on the nipple area. Now, that, 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 that's why this had a lot of high strangeness and confronting aspects to it. But at that point, when he did that, he started to have a, a severe coughing fit. And to that point, he, he kind of looked down and uh, for what he thought was only a few moments. And he, he got this strong mental impression in his head that uh, uh, as if this blonde woman was telling the uh, Asian-looking woman, uh, this is not the way this is meant to happen. You know, this is the wrong way. And, and, and this is like a strong mental impression coming into his mind. And... And at that point, the coughing continued, and he, he looks up again, and uh, both of them are gone. And Bill, before you continue, I have to ask a question. You, you indicated that um, he stated to you that when this started, he didn't feel like uh, th this had any kind of a sexual connotation to it. But from what you're describing, it sounds like, especially the the comment that he that he that he thinks he hears in his mind, this is not the way it's supposed to happen. It sounds like it was very much a sexual situation. No, um, I think you have to understand that the context in which it occurred, like uh, he was having some severe side effects uh, with regard to uh, recovering from this uh, head injury, 
he was often vomiting a lot. He was going backwards and forwards to the doctor, etc. Uh, he didn't want to take really severe medication, that kind of stuff. Uh, so he was not in a, in a very pleasant kind of state. And, and, right. uh, uh, and, and so basically, uh, uh, it was basically a, a chore, a, a great, something great difficult to just take his wife to the to the station so she could go off to work, but it was something he had to do because no, he was off no, work. And, I understand, Bill. I'm not trying to say that, you know, that he didn't see this as being sexually stimulating to him. What I'm saying is that it sounds like the intention of these reported two women was to engage in some sort of sexual interaction. Right. Uh, that, that kind of connotation can be put there, but as far as Peter's concerned, it, it didn't have that aspect to it. Now he mm. uh, was having, he was wearing basically long johns, that kind of uh, uh, clothing, and had at least a sheet over and that kind of thing. And um, he's unclear on that element as to uh, at some point in the episode, he's aware that he's on top of the sheet, uh, but he still has his clothes on. And that's the extent of his recollection okay. um, in, in respect of that. Uh, he has tried hypnosis to uh, kind of get into this in more detail, but nothing has emerged. And I've even had um, hypnosis uh, um, under controlled circumstances uh, uh, in this situation with him as well to see if uh, something could clarify this, but he hasn't been able to get beyond that. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. that, we have Bill Chalker, UFO researcher from The Land Down Under, author of such books as Hair of the Alien, DNA, and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abductions. Before we go on with this, and because you've been on for a little while here, I was curious, maybe you could tell our listeners for a minute or so a little bit about your background and how you happened to get involved in looking into UFOs. Right, yes. I, I, I got sort of interested uh, as a... Um, uh, I, 
sort of a young teenager at Sydney, my hometown, and had a lot of your experiences. Uh, I, I hadn't actually said something at that point, but it really cut me in a little because uh, uh, I had a bit of a scientific bent to me, I guess, even at a young age, and uh, I was kind of intrigued by this whole uh, UFO subject and started to uh, read more and more about it. This was during the 1960s, and uh, uh, by that stage, uh, certainly by the end of the 60s, uh, I was certainly... Uh, involved in a fairly uh, reasonable kind of way, probably more as an enthusiast uh, at that stage, but a pretty well-read enthusiast by then. And uh, uh, by the end of the 1960s, there were a number of big waves of sightings, even physical evidence-type sightings, UFO landing cases on the North Coast where I lived. Um, and in 1969, there was a, a major outbreak of... Uh, of so-called flying saucer nests, etc., around the North Coast, uh, quite a number of them. Uh, even one had got national publicity on the property of a, of a parliamentarian, uh, and so I joined the, the throng of people that went out to this property at a place called Bungawalbin, and, and uh, that was... What's the name of the place, Bill, please? Uh, well, just uh, slowly Bung- so we can hear it. Bungawalbin. Okay. And uh, this location, um, there was an area of huge, uh, well, it was a sackling crop, uh, very similar to the sugarcane, but uh, which was flattened in an unusual kind of way. And uh, it turned out that um, flood mitigation workers nearby had seen uh, peculiar lights or top-shaped objects um, in the vicinity. And and so uh, it leaked out pretty quickly that uh, we were connecting this sort of damaged uh, farming site to... uh, the presence of a UFO landing, etc., and there were quite a number of cases of UFO landings and actual objects seen uh, within the locality. But most of that kind of information came out later rather than at the time. So it was always just this mainly a focus on the fact that there was this physical damage site, and I guess that's sort of the thing that got me really interested in the physical dimensions of the phenomenon that, you know, maybe one can take a look at these UFO land cases and uh, maybe take samples and uh, submit them to laboratory analysis. And uh, by that stage, by the early 70s, I was at the University of New England at Ardale and uh, going through a science degree course, etc. So, uh, and occasionally doing what, what's been described as forbidden science on the quiet in the laboratory analysing UFO landing cases, etc. when the, you know, the faculty used to wander by, admiring my weekend zeal for working in the laboratory when nobody else was there. Uh, he never really bothered to ask what I was doing. So, so I went and uh, continued doing analysis that way. And, and these were local cases of UFO landings and soil samples, that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was hooked by then. And um, uh, by the time I left uh, uh, university, um, and uh, moved uh, to Sydney in 1975. Uh, I was very much uh, actively involved in investigating cases around Australia and uh, focusing on the on the physical evidence cases, the UFO landing cases. Have you been at all in touch with Ted Phillips? Oh yeah, yeah Ted, Ted. I got to know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I unfortunately never met Ted in person, but I kind of feel I've had a, a fairly strong association with Ted because uh, he and I shared a, an interest in the UFO landing cases, the physical trace cases, and uh, certainly by 1976 when these um, physical trace catalogue was published by the Centre for UFO Studies uh, in Chicago, uh, I'd already by that stage um, isolated a large number of similar cases in Australia, and so I shared that information uh, with Ted, some of that got into the catalogue, uh, and uh, I was publishing my own sort of catalogues of that nature here in Australia, and, and so by that stage, by the the 
mid seventies, late seventies, I, I was kind of recognised as I guess the local version of Ted Phillips uh, investigating uh, UFO landing cases, and that became a, a very much a strong forte of mine that uh, that we were examining those sorts of cases and. Uh, uh, there weren't any striking examples of that. and I, I think at one stage I published a detailed paper uh, where I examined over about two or three hundred UFO landing cases of which we isolated about 33 being very strong kinds of cases um, just from Australia involved not only UFO sightings but very strongly correlated uh, just a quick question, Bill. Um, in the kind of research that Ted did, he was able to do things like come to this conclusion that uh, there were some specific types of effects that had occurred, for example, in the soil, the, the lack of an ability to absorb water, for example. Were you finding the same kinds of things with the trace cases you were looking at in Australia? Only up to a limited extent, there seemed to be a fairly broad cross-section. You know, I know that the war effect of the thing that you were reporting there, um, uh, from my background also, too, I was aware of the fact that things like fairy rings have this strong effect that they call hydrophobicity, where the soil repels water, and this is the right. effect, but that's right. correlated with fairy rings as well. And I often wondered whether or not particularly the um, Delphi case had a kind of a connection but I also was aware of the fact that uh, when soil had experienced severe trauma uh, by what appeared to be some sort of highly energetic effect that might have taken place with a UFO landing, but we had the situation where the soil has been traumatised, uh, uh, fungal type of effects can be they're, they're highly kind of uh, parasitic in the, in the sense that they will take over and really take advantage of any compromisation that takes place of, of soil. And so to me, I found it not surprising that sometimes when you put a soil sample, uh, if you waited long enough at a site that's been affected by UFA, you'll start to see evidence of uh, fungal effects, that kind of stuff. But in the Delphi case uh, that we looked at, uh, these kind of effects of hydrophobicity were, 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 were being reported pretty promptly. And so uh, that may well have been a valid effect. Uh, that he reported there, in my experience, most of the most kind of water-resistant effects occurred in cases that involved um, uh, fairy rings, that kind of thing. Fairy rings? Fairy rings are the term for um, when you often see them uh, like circles uh, of grass where they've been affected. Um, very, very common kind of fungal effects. Uh, that's one thing I, I grew to specialise in. Was in a lot of physical trace cases, one of the things that I attempted to do in a, a lot of detail was to uh, look at all the different effects that it can occur in nature and to understand those to a great extent, uh, i.e. things like fairy rings where the circles are found in the grass uh, and quite often these are uncritically seen as evidence of UFOs and that kind of stuff, but uh, fairy rings are quite common and um, uh, one needs to know about all these different kinds of manifestations in nature that can be kind of mistaken for UFO landing effects and that's why like Ted Phillips uh, in America, we've obviously tried to focus on cases where there's a clear-cut correlation between a UFO being seen to land and uh, tangible physical traces that are correlated specifically to the landing site. In many cases, you've got lots of cases where uh, 
these kind of correlations are fairly dicey and and, uh, and it's fairly speculative as to the connection between the UFO landing and the physical trace and and of course then uh, but working in, in this kind of environment in the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s we didn't have the the big problem of the proliferation of the so-called uh, crop circles particularly out of England which has kind of been a bit of a blight in terms of physical trace investigation because mm-hmm. you, you know, we've had all these kind of crop circles and uh, I'm a bit of a agnostic when it comes to uh, crop circles. I've followed the controversy since it began and uh, I see more evidence of human intelligence beside, behind crop circles than I do of aliens and that kind of thing. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, So that, that's kind of my position. But I, I've always found talking about crop circles, uh, it seems to bring out all those passionate kinds of people that have great emotional investments in, into the crop circle game and, and so I tend to kind of stay away from that kind of discussion because it, it can get into some fairly kind of colourful areas. Yeah. But, but to me crop circles, um, you know, there, there are some, certainly some crop circles where there's some certainly interesting sort of situations where it's difficult to uh, come up with a human explanation but uh, uh, I think they're in the minority and, and there's certainly a very strong argument that most of them are due to human agency. Absolutely. But Bill, let's, I'd love to get back to the, uh, the Peter Corey case because what we haven't talked about is the, the real core issue of that case, which ends up being physical evidence, supposedly. So let's, let's please go back to that. Yes, I described uh, Peter uh, had had this very confronting experience, etc., and, uh, and he'd been coughing, uh, severely coughing, in reaction to biting on this woman's uh, nipple, and and uh, and that to him had the desired result that the the, the woman had released him, and and, uh, and and he was coughing severely, and and then when he looked up. Uh, the two women have gone. Now, that was bizarre enough in itself because Peter was aware that the room or the house had been locked up and uh, so that he could sleep without any kind of uh, concern about anybody getting in. And uh, and so uh, uh, that that was confronting, but, but, but uh, he couldn't understand what had ha- happened. He, he was immediately seized by a desire to, um, to pass urine, so he, he, he went to the bathroom and... Uh, uh, started to urinate, and and that experience was particularly distressing. It was very painful, and when when he looked down, he could see that there was some uh, what appeared to him to be blonde hair wrapped around uh, his private part. Because he uh, had been involved with the 1988 experience, the attempts to uh, understand that, establishing a, a contact or a UFO experience support group or, or an abduction support group. Uh, and starting to become familiar with the subject, he, he felt that what had happened to him was something that had happened in, in, a, in a kind of a context of an alien abduction experience. And so here he, he realised that this hair might be important, but he was also quite aware that this was something that was quite bizarre. Uh, and, and so he had the presence of mind to put that hair into a little sample bag, like a little, um, just a Ziploc type of bag, Mm-hmm. and then put that into a uh, filing cabinet drawer. And that's pretty much where it stayed. Yeah, it, it, this experience was so confronting to him, he, he initially had difficulty in reporting it to his wife for obvious reasons, uh, and, but it was uh, several days later before he told his wife. He, 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 had to, he actually had rung her up and said to him, I'm not ready to talk about it, but it, uh, within a... When I'm ready, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. And I'll be, uh, the context is that I had this really severe coughing fit. And 
by the time she came home that day, he still was coughing, and uh, they tried all sorts of things to stop him from coughing. So he had a, what, what uh, on subsequent analysis seemed to be almost like a, a severe allergy shock, um, and uh, we were, were trying to assess that, but by that stage it was already too late to, to, to look into that. But the uh, the implication was that ultimately something had happened and that it appeared to be in a, a, an abduction context and uh, eventually within several days Peter tells Vivian about it and she was very supportive of him because she was quite aware of all the, the context of, of what was going on. But what became more difficult is that he also, within a few days, started telling members, key members of his support group, and these were uh, like welfare uh, social welfare type people or psychologists or, and there was a physicist in the group as well and they were all a bit uneasy of this particular episode from 1992 because essentially uh, his 88 experience was of the classic stereotypical alien abduction case whereas this experience was uh, pretty confronting and pretty uh, a very high strangeness component to it and they also felt that it had this kind of connotation about it with two female-type entities involved, that it, that it could be misunderstood. Peter showed them the hair. None of them handled it directly. He kept it inside the plastic bag. Uh, and I'm glad he did that uh, for obvious reasons, but um, none of them kind of could deal with this directly. They kind of didn't really want to look into it, and Peter kind of asked them to look into it as a kind of a... Uh, a kind of a template for dealing with other cases of a high stranger. So he was volunteering himself to to be looked at, but none of them really wanted to look at it. Uh, and uh, in the end, they kind of said, "Well, let's just deal with you know keep, keep it to your, your 1988 experience, and that that we're more comfortable with that." You know, and he found that particularly disappointing. Um, and uh, ultimately, he he put that case of 1992 on the back burner. Now it was only a few years later that. I became more involved with Peter and his support group and acted as a bit of a, I guess, a scientific consultant to them from time to time. And uh, it was during a, actually a meeting with, um, I think, a couple of potential documentary producers who were uh, talking about the whole abduction scene and the, Peter's um, support group work that uh, they were talking about physical evidence and now and he would talk about, you know, the uh, the scoop marks on his body and that kind of stuff, the injury to his head. And they were sort of uh, saying, well, but what about some tangible physical evidence and stuff like this? And then, surprisingly, Peter then mentioned that, yes, there was an experience that he had where there was these these hair samples. And this is the first time that I'd heard about it uh, a year, year or two later. So he obviously had not discussed it with many people, uh, but part of my investigation later was to go down that pathway to establish the chain of evidence for this sample, and I was able to credibly establish all that, uh, that there was this good, strong chain of evidence between Peter, the event that he described, and the hair samples, and that, that's important in terms of the forensic investigation that we mm-hmm. subsequently undertook. So, so, so uh, quick, quick question. Peter's wife, Vivian, what color was her hair? Uh, yeah, well, we went through all the obvious things. Uh, um, as a trained uh, chemist, um, I uh, was quite okay with the need to establish control samples and that kind of stuff. You know, right. anything that's unknown, uh, we, we looked at everything. Uh, we looked at a wide range of control samples, Peter's hair, um, uh, a wide range of um, uh, different types of hair samples, uh, uh, Vivian's hair. Uh, she she had a, a kind of a 
a darker color type of, uh, of hair. There was no obvious comparison point between Peter, Vivian, or any near friends that we could come up with. In fact, the hair sample itself, when we looked at it under the uh, very strong microscope, um, uh, and we filmed this under the microscope as well uh, and did a complete traverse of the hair sample, uh, it was basically almost optically transparent. Um, it had very low levels of melanin, which is the uh, colouring component of the hair. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, while it might have appeared to be uh, blonde in colour, uh, it actually seemed to be almost optically transparent. It was right on the edge of the human range of hair, quite thin, uh, and so it was quite unusual, even just uh, morphologically in terms of examining it. And uh, so, we, so we had that kind of initial physical examination and comparisons and that kind of thing, and uh, we're obviously trying to establish two uh, contamination, that kind of stuff, who would handle the hair and all the rest of it. And fortunately, Peter had always kept it inside the plastic bag and he wouldn't let anybody take it out. The only person that had handled the hair was him. And that actually was confirmed later when we did, as part of the initial sampling, we would do washings of the outside of the hair to see what kind of uh, DNA was apparent in the washing on the outside of the hair. And that confirmed that the only DNA that was present on the washing was from the surface of the hair itself plus uh, which was consistent with the internal parts of the hair and also previous DNA so we were able to confirm that um, so the, uh, for those that are interested in the detail um, the, there's quite a lot of detail on this case uh, in a PDF file that's on the Kufas site and also on my own Ausfiles website and also a lot of this detail, plus the subsequent research DNA work that we did, which was essentially two phases, is all recorded in, in the book here in the island, which you can get through Amazon.com. And that was one of the specific things that I required in terms of publication of this data. The case itself is so strange that we needed to ensure that any kind of biochemist uh, would be able to look at the, the methodology and understand that we did it in a very comprehensive and, and uh, appropriate way. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Bill Chalker, UFO researcher, joining us. We're talking about this test of the so-called alien hair samples. So looking over the entire picture, beginning to end, you can't say it's not human, can you? No, um, and I, I've actually never said that it was alien. What, I, what I've said that, that, that whoever was the donor of this hair sample uh, was certainly unusual and had a very unusual characteristics. Number one, for what appeared to be a blonde hair sample or something that was sort of fairly optically transparent with low levels of melanin, 
we were expecting the biochemists and myself working with it, we were expecting to get entirely mundane results that were typical of uh, at best Caucasian kind of uh, um, DNA profiles. Uh, we concentrated on the shaft of the hair because we felt that that was the the, the section that we're going to get the most uh, success with initially because it, even though it was kept in a plastic bag, it was still a compromised hair sample as far as we were concerned and we were looking at it several years after it had been collected. And we were quite surprised, um, and well, quite dismayed, the biochemists were at least anyway, that, uh, that uh, instead of uh, this typical Caucasian thing, and you've got to keep in mind the technique that we used was uh, uh, the biochemists uh, involved in this were quite well-credentialed biochemists who had published peer-reviewed papers in many journals, and one was a leading biochemist uh, who had published in, uh, again, peer-reviewed journals and also uh, written textbooks, that kind of stuff, and, and so very competent, experienced, world-class biochemists. And uh, looking at this result, they were quite struck by it. They, they just couldn't understand the result. And what we got was that we had a rare Asian mongoloid DNA in what's referred to as the the region of hypervariability. Now, this region of hypervariability in human DNA is what's uh, exploited by the FBI and police around the world in, uh, in terms of um, equivalent genetic fingerprints of, of uh, identifying people. That, that's the key component of, of the technique. And that's where we concentrated on this region of hypervariability in human DNA. And in in, there, in that area, you should get a pretty clear-cut picture of the profile of the donor of the person. And uh, in this case, uh, we were getting uh, rare Asian mongoloid DNA in what should have been to us a Caucasian hair sample, or a blonde hair sample, because there's no evidence that it was due to uh, hair dyeing or anything uh, mundane like that. So we, we had a, a major anomaly there, and, and that was the substance of the anomaly that we reported back in 1999 in the International UFO Report when we published the paper called Strange Evidence. And that caused a bit of a stir at the time because it was, and it was fairly well received, the report, and even better for us as researchers, uh, we received some private funding to do more detailed work because we, we, we wanted to go to the next step, and that was to examine the root of the hair and uh, also try and do some nuclear DNA work because all the work up to that point was mitochondrial DNA. And uh, we did that obviously for reasons that uh, it was a, well, we thought that it was a female uh, hair sample and, and we concentrated on that. And so um, with phase two, uh, that was what we concentrated. We replicated the work nearer to the, to the uh, along the shaft towards the root of the hair. We replicated the early work that confirmed the Asian mongoloid DNA. And in, in addition, uh, when we looked at the root, uh, we were expecting to get that kind of confirmation as well. But instead of that, we got uh, mainly in this region of hypervariability again. Instead of the Asian mongoloid DNA, we got the um, rare bath garlic DNA. Now, that in itself was quite a shocking result for the DNA specialist because anywhere as you take your um, sample uh, along the hair, or uh, uh, blood and all that kind of stuff, you should get consistent DNA profiles, particularly in this hypervariable region, and, and uh, we weren't getting that. Now, there are some DNA anomalies that can occur on a small scale, such as a thing called uh, heteroplasmy, which 
means that um, you can get small shifts in DNA, but here we were talking about large shifts in the DNA, and uh, certainly these very experienced DNA people that were looking at, at this sample for me uh, couldn't explain it. They just thought this was extraordinary, and, and trying to figure out what this uh, meant. And it, it appeared to give sustenance to the claim of people like David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins as they part of the... Uh, scenario involved with these alien abduction claims is that uh, uh, we, we, the, the process was creating like hybrid beings, that kind of thing. And uh, here we had in this one sample evidence that there was a kind of a hybridization going on. Uh, and, and the only way one could replicate this, and bearing in mind this, we were doing this work in 1999 through to uh, the early 2000s and, and completing it by about 2001, 2002. And as soon as we got this result, the DNA specialists were off trying to figure out is there anything else that, that can replicate this. And eventually, as it turned out, in 2000, 2001, there was a paper published in Nature which was like cutting-edge DNA uh, research uh, uh, using clonal-type research that uh, was an effort to try and cure human baldness in males, and they were using these advanced cloning techniques to try and uh, bypass the problem of inter-racial inter, uh, uh, kind of uh, hair transplanting, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, what was noticed in the DNA results was that you were getting this kind of hybridization effect taking place in root of, of the hair. And, uh, and so here we had in 2000 or 2001 in Nature some very advanced uh, cloning papers uh, highlighting the, uh, the kind of result that we were getting in a hair sample that was collected by a, a gentleman in a very bizarre way way back in 1992. Uh, uh, so this itself was a very puzzling and confronting uh, result, which we kind of felt was a bit of a breakthrough result as well. And additionally, we did do some work on the nuclear DNA aspect, and from that uh, we also got a bit of puzzling and compelling result, and that suggested that the DNA also had a DNA trait uh, that's fairly rare, but, but it is, is present in small pockets, particularly amongst uh, Scandinavian communities, the Akashki Jews, and in other limited localities, but unfortunately not widespread enough. But it, that's called this CCR5 deletion factor. Uh, if you've got that, that means that you're largely impervious to things like HIV, AIDS, and smallpox. Now, uh, that uh, collection of results, the the apparent hybrid nature of it, the CCR5 result, that kind of thing, all of that collectively made for a very strange DNA profile. Uh, now, it doesn't say that it's alien, uh, but it certainly suggests that the donor was pretty, pretty unusual, and the challenge uh, for anybody is essentially trying to replicate that result in a regular human person. And it isn't easy, but it could be done. But it was well beyond anybody like Peter and anybody at the time to replicate that result back in 1992. Um, so for us, it was a pretty strong result and one worthy of reporting, and that's what is in essence reported in the book Hair of the Alien. Bill, who, who did you actually have doing the DNA analysis? These people, the, the the lab and the technicians who did this went public. I mean, basically, they they allowed you to use their names and their identities. No, no, 
No, they did not. Uh, see, one of the, one of the problems was that uh, without my permission, uh, uh, UFO magazine in California published a report that they picked up off the web, uh, one of my reports on this case. And for some reason beyond me, uh, in the editorial editions to the article, they had under, uh, under my name reporting that this DNA work was done by Dr. Kerry Mullis, who was the Nobel Prize winner of uh, the... Uh, Technique PCR that, that, that was uh, that led to uh, all this revolution in biochemistry, and and that was the backbone of the technique we used in this work as well. Now I did interview Kerry Morris, uh, and he was quite impressed with it. In fact, he, he's kind of unique amongst Nobel Prize winners that he's the only one that claims to have had an alien abduction himself. So a very controversial guy, but, and uh, a bit of a leader in the biochemistry field, but. Uh, uh, he was aware of what we had done, but that was in retrospect, and uh, yeah, he admired what we'd done. And uh, but he's not the one that did the work, and uh, uh, for reasons that are pretty apparent to anybody who works in these fields, particularly in uh, uh, government and private industry, uh, it's not exactly a career enhancer to be <laughs> highlighting the fact that you've done work on alien DNA or, or, or anything controversial of that nature and, and uh, so we've been circumspect um, and it is difficultly familiar of course to not be able to identify them. The people involved, particularly the key biochemists, is probably not totally uncomfortable with it but uh, uh, still not willing to have his name connected to it as well but uh, I've had people uh, that we've worked with such as Dr Cole Kellner who's the co-author of The Hunt for the Skinwalker uh, uh, who was associated with the NIDS uh, organization. Right, Robert Bigelow's organization. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, uh, Cole Kellner is a biochemist as well, and we've actually worked with him on other cases of physical evidence involved in the back cases. He has privately got to know that people that are involved with me and has been quite impressed with the DNA work that's been done. So that's by way of, of peer review, and by, uh, but uh, unfortunately we haven't gone to that step being able to identify the biochemists that have been involved with me, but I've had others, so, biochemists, uh, verify their credentials. And uh, we, we actually got involved with Cole Cullinan to examine the so-called ad and claw case in California, and it was our DNA work that largely... Uh, confirmed that we weren't dealing with an alien claw, but in fact dealing with a, a terrestrial mollusk or, or, or a snail. Yeah. You know, just, just rewind for a second, because I'm not clear on what it is that UFO magazine then published that caused a problem, and we've had our own issues with the fine folks over at UFO magazine. Well, well what they did is that they introduced a paragraph that suggested that the person that did the DNA work was Kerry Mullis. I see. Okay. And right. uh, I, when I heard that, that they'd published that without mm. my permission, I objected to that and asked them to correct it uh, because that was not the case. He was aware of what we'd done, but he wasn't the person that did the DNA analysis. All right. Mm. Then did you did you write that article for UFO? Or did they? No, they, no, I, I did not. No, they lifted that off the web without my knowledge and published it under my name. Really? They published it. They ascribed it to you as if they gave you a byline, as if you had written it. Yeah, so I'd written most of it, but I hadn't written the opening paragraph. For them, right. But as if you had been commissioned to write it for them. That's correct. But I hadn't. All right. I wasn't very impressed, and in fact, that 
that I've never I've never written anything for UFO magazine, and obviously that experience uh, also suggested I wouldn't be writing for them again. You hear it on TV, you hear it on radio, cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 866 596 6134. That number again, 1 866 596 6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two G's. Goldbug.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Bill Chalker, UFO author, historian, researcher, and he's telling us about his close encounter with UFO magazine that didn't end up very well. David wrote one article for them, and that was it. Yeah, I wrote it. no articles for them. Right. Oh, I've got to admit, personally, I was rather disgusted in what had happened. Uh, now, if they had asked me whether they could publish one of my reports on the DNA case, I would have been only too happy to allow them to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I would not have been very impressed with the fact that they would have introduced uh, creative editorializing uh, under my byline. Uh, and that's what happened. Uh, well, uh, had they approached you formally, you might have actually asked them for money. No. Nah. see. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, but from their point of view, you might have, which is why they, I'm sure, which is why they probably just ended up lifting it. Um, well, I, I think uh, anybody who knows me realizes that uh, any UFO magazine I write for, I, I don't ask for money. So right, right. <laughs> I've been publishing in the UFO field. I know what the UFO, the reality of the UFO field are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've, I've been a contributing editor for uh, the International UFO Reporter uh, uh, since... Uh, the mid-80s, etc., and so a lot of that stuff has been published there, uh, MUFON Journal, um, uh, FSR, a whole range of magazines, even uh, the Ufologist magazine here in Australia, which has been a newsstand publication. Uh, all of that uh, I've written for for decades uh, without any kind of real new, new, uh, pay, pay, payment anyway. Right. So. I would yeah. gather just explaining, of course, that even though you've written some books on the subject, we're quite certain that you're not rolling in the dough either. Sadly not, but uh, I, I have had some, uh, fortunately, some uh, private funding with, uh, without any strings attached to it, which has allowed me to uh, undertake what is a fairly kind of cost-intensive uh, research here, specifically focusing on this DNA-type stuff. Uh, and uh, I've been glad to get that, and, and uh, that's allowed me to kind of look at this on a full-time basis and and it's been this bit of Curie case that's led to some pretty interesting kind of investigative uh, paths, and that is that we've tried to then go beyond that res- result. Uh, uh, you know, the publication of the initial findings in IOR uh, back in 99, I class as phase one, 
Phase two was the publication of the second round of investigations that focus on the root of the hair. Uh, that was phase two, published pretty much all together in, in the book, uh, Hair of the Alien. Phase three was a, the, another step in the sense that we were also very interested in what was the rare Asian mongoloid DNA that was found in the root, because that seemed pretty odd. And we were trying to focus on that. And uh, we knew that we'd correlated that as occurring very rarely amongst Chinese or Asian DNA profiles. But these data banks were uh, limited in terms of access and all, and all the contributions were anonymous. And so we were uh, trying to correlate what was that DNA related to. And in the end, we, uh, because of connections that we set up with um, uh, Chinese biochemists, uh, and we did part of that during 2002 and subsequently with visits to China and other places, uh, we were able to establish that that particular DNA profile correlated rather uniquely, it seemed, with a small ethnic group called the Lahu people, uh, who are most prominent in northern Thailand, Laos, southern China, and a little bit in Cambodia. Uh, and that was part of the main thrust of why I travelled to uh, northern Thailand and to southern China during uh, 2006 to investigate that particular aspect related to the Lahu uh, because we were most fascinated as to why uh, this uh, small group of people will be appearing in the um, shaft of the unusual hair type uh, that was collected under very unusual circumstances in 1992 in Sydney, Australia. And uh, what kind of information did you dig up in doing that research? We found that typically, like a lot of indigenous groups, uh, they too had these shaman connections, uh, sky law, sky being law, that kind of stuff. Uh, the area seemed to have unusual light phenomena, uh, UFO type phenomena, and particularly in southern Yunnan. Um, in with my visit there, I took a, uh, a rather arduous bus trip, small bus trip that went down crisscrossing uh, the Lancheng River, which is essentially the Mekong River in China. Uh, we went to Lancheng, which is the uh, uh, basically the capital, the local capital, which is kind of an autonomous region for the Lahu, and the Lahu dominate in the area. But unfortunately, like uh, the experiences that are occurring. Tibet and other places, and um, in Urumqi um, uh, and, and Western China, uh, most of these areas are starting to get um, populated by uh, ethnic Chinese Han people and are tending to dominate uh, the local indigenous populations. But uh, at the time that we visited, it was still a very substantial Han population, the Lahu were very prevalent, and they are meant to be the uh, the ones in charge in the area, and so, but it gave us the opportunity to be able to um, uh, meet with a lot of the Lahu people and uh, do some research work there amongst the Lahu, and, uh, and that enabled us to uh, examine this DNA aspect. And it is a, it is pretty unusual and, and, and somewhat unique to the Lahu, and um, and we're also able to get some of the data related to uh, possible. UFO connections, that kind of thing. So uh, that was like a stepping stone for me in the sense of going on to what I call now phase four, which is what I'm currently preoccupied with, and that is what I, I kind of generically call this alien DNA paradigm, this kind of uh, DNA nexus. Where it, with, I'm kind of examining 
in, in many ways all these different indigenous populations because one finds when we start to examine them, you often find uh, very politically, in fact, um, that they all seem to have uh, this sky being law. Uh, 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 and when you start to look at that with Western eyes, you start to see many, many similarities to what seems to be going on today in abduction related situations. And when, when, when you have the further complications that these areas seem to be centres of UFO phenomena and unusual life phenomena, that kind of thing, uh, and they seem to occasionally have unusual DNA markers, uh, that to me is a very fertile uh, research area, and that's been the focus of, of what we've been looking at over the last few years and probably will be for the next several years as well. But well, that, that is not just unique to the Lohu, we're, we're talking Aboriginal communities uh, worldwide here, um, areas like the Kaiapo uh, natives in Brazil, uh, they have a very strong uh, kind of uh, connection with uh, sky beings, etc. In the, the Anu population in Japan, uh, even amongst the Maoris in New Zealand, the Zulu population in Africa, all of them have very strong kind of connections with uh, what they claim to be almost like uh, beings that have come from up there and down here and interacted with them. And, and by looking at the DNA, maybe we can uh, possibly uh, have some direct correlations with uh, the old Oriol uh, stories of Von Denikin uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> uh, presence of terrestrials in our cultures uh, earlier on. We don't have a lot of time left here, Bill, so let's kind of just maybe sum up a few things here. As you've covered all this, we have the DNA, which may or may not be human. We have all the other stuff you've done. Do you have any conclusions yet as to what we're dealing with? Are you looking for ET or what? Um, well, I'm open-minded as to what we're finding here. And as I've described, there is phase four inquiry that we're doing, which has all been an extension of the, the Peter Curie inquiry um, with phase one. Um, uh, to me, it's certainly highly suggestive. And uh, if anybody had asked me decades ago whether I'd be looking into this kind of aspect, I would have probably laughed at the... Um, it's, uh, to me, a very rich area of inquiry, and while it has potential of uh, uh, either confirming or not confirming uh, whether or not there has been an extraterrestrial presence. Has Peter Curry had any subsequent incidents or, or experiences? Uh, he has had a number of uh, experiences, but none of them have had this kind of physical evidence connection to them. Uh, so obviously, uh, Peter and I have kept in close contact. And in fact, we've become pretty friendly. And Peter, in fact, uh, has become a bit of an asset in terms of research as well. Um, I've also approached uh, this whole abduction area from the point of view of uh, probably not too comfortably, but in the sense of uh, if there is any uh, substantial reality to these abduction experiences, why not um, come along for the ride and uh, uh, being in the presence of abductees, etc., out in investigations in UFO flat areas to me is an interesting uh, uh, tool in the sense of uh, if something does occur, um, uh, it'd be interesting to be in the presence of uh, abductees, etc. And so I've been pushing that envelope as well in terms of active participation in uh, with abductees uh, to see whether an experience can occur uh, from the point of view. You know, uh, we're probably not going to have time to get to it today, Bill, but we'd love to talk to you about the situation in recent times in China. There's been some very weird stuff. But I'm just going to ask you a kind of a, a, uh, here's a, here's a trick question. A lot of the information about China, and, and we, we've had some emails from some people in China 
Um, one person in particular who wrote us and said that he was a direct witness of one of these uh, recent UFO sightings during the eclipse. But a lot of the information about the Chinese situation is coming out of a, a website that I believe is an Australian website, and I believe is managed by an Australian national. I could be wrong about this, but... Uh, you does, correct it. Yeah, so you know who I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. And I had uh, uh, some uh, candid conversations with him. Um, initially, uh, I was somewhat uh, skeptical of, of the news service we're talking about. Um, right. And I, I kind of confronted him a little bit with a direct uh, kind of questions as to whether or not, you know, he was sort of uh, uh, in tabloid mode, more reminiscent of something like World, World, Weekly World News or National Inquiry type of approach. But, uh, uh, he may be putting a few tabloid flourishes on it, but by and large, uh, he is uh, just basically repeating stories that he's getting and, and actually accessing through um, Chinese websites, that kind of thing, and, uh, and, all, and also through other contacts and that kind of stuff. So I, I ended up having to compliment him on his capture of uh, various Chinese news services, etc. something that I do a lot as well, but... Um, it's uh, always a problem of uh, things being lost in translation, that kind of stuff. And it is difficult, but uh, uh, it's part of the opening up of the Chinese UFO experience, and, and it's something I've been in the ring Right. Well, well, sadly, he hasn't just been covering the Chinese situation. He's been trying to cover a bunch of other material as well. Uh, well, some of the, some of the other stuff is colourful for my standards, but right. Uh, well, I, I, I think we we would categorise it as laughable and nonsensical. But that's, that's just right. my opinion. Well, you know, the only, the only thing I can say there is in terms of something that I do know a lot about, that is the Chinese UFO scene, right. uh, his coverage has been largely based on uh, accessing uh, Chinese news services and other mm -hmm. contexts there, and I've been able to verify a lot of the stuff that he has been coming up with. So uh, at least in that area, um, I'm reasonably comfortable with, with what he's doing. Uh, in terms of the spin and interpretation, that's another matter. I'll tell you what, can we invite you back for another session? Yep, of course. Okay, thanks. We're out of time. Bill Chalker, author of a few books including the most recent one, Hair of the Alien, DNA and Other Forensic Evidence of Alien Abductions. We have a link to Bill Chalker's blog. So if you go to thepowercast.com and you click on his name, evermore you'll find it. Bill Chalker, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you, Bill. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.